The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie Happy Wednesday. George Hook here uh, with The Right Hook on Newstalk. Here are some of the best bits that you might have missed on today's programme. It's a busy day here at News Talk, all sorts of the usual preparation. And then we've had a, a great work intern, Caroline, today, who's been seeing what, it like, what it's like behind the scenes. And we also got um, a truckload of emails on the issue of uh, talking to the racist network last night, the guests Farah and Lucky or even the anti-racist network, uh, and it got pretty testy last night, and there was tons of reaction from you, the listeners, and I thank you for that. Well, I got a, a very hard time from somebody like Ashling, who said I was a racist and behaved abominably from, uh, I'll have a guest at five o'clock, in fact, from University College Cork, who thinks this is a racist country. I don't. Um, the, the vast majority of Irish people don't think they're racist, so it's going to be interesting to see how we go with that one. Um, Victoria Beckham has been ferociously attacked online for posting a picture of herself kissing her five-year-old daughter, Harper, on the lips. Well, a lot of defenders, of course, coming on with pictures of them kissing their daughter on the lips. I actually don't know. It's one of these rare occasions where I find myself completely gobsmacked about it. Um I never kiss my children on the lips, but I, I wonder, does it matter all that much? Um, we're, we're incredibly, I think, um, politically correct in relation to um, the, the situation between parent and child. I mean, let's be honest, the amount of actual sexual abuse or any kind of abuse, for that matter, between parents and children is still tiny. The vast majority of parents are, are loving and caring and attentive. And therefore, we can't ascribe adult uh, rules or virtues uh, to signs of affection between mother and daughter or father and son or any parent and their child. Well, I'm with Victoria Beckham. It's her child. It's their family. And uh, as long as that family stays together and everybody's happy, then I think it'll be wonderful. So good luck to her. And who are we to judge? You could, of course, let me know what you think by sending a text to uh, 53106. We have a few texts already. Uh, Barry, who says that people who read into that image of Victoria Beckham kissing her child as being sexual says more about the people who looked at the picture. Uh, and uh, there was also yesterday, uh, we had the situation of that interview with the Black Lives Matter support group. And uh, Ben says that was the worst interview ever on the radio, and I've been listening a long time, he says, those people know nothing about Black Lives Matter. And uh, back to Beckham, uh, Mikko says, ridiculous people talking about it. 
Some people also consider it ridiculous that uh, Finnefall Senator Brian O'Donnell uh, had uh, apparently duplicated expenses in the region of €2,000. And uh, the the expenses involved of investigating the expenses, if you know what I mean, was 300000 Now, I'm not actually sure how they racked up 300000 in investigating, but whether they did or whether they didn't. Uh, for a country in which we've already seen now and in the past that we have a very cavalier attitude, um, towards expenses, charity, donations, um, tax, accounting, or otherwise, I think we're right to investigate it. And if it costs €300,000 to investigate it, then so be it. What do you want? Do you want the Fianna Fáil Senator Brian O'Donnell to be investigated for, for claiming travel and subsistence expenses? Uh, and uh, he claims that he was in two places at the same time in order to claim expenses. Do you just forget about it and say, ah, yeah, it's okay? Or do we uh, investigate it? I'm all in favour. Well, uh, the Victoria Beckham thing goes on, George, but if you sexualize a kiss between mother and daughter, you are the problem, not Victoria, says Giddy Guy. I presume you're talking about other people and not me. Thanks. A backlash towards Victoria Beckham for kissing her daughter is so worrying. What's wrong with people, says Emma. And George says, George, it's cute. Just plain cute. Not because it's Beckham, but because it's a mum and child having a little kiss. We need to calm down. But Leah says, so there are plenty out there. Leah says, Victoria should respect her daughter's body autonomy. Uh, anybody who can explain uh, daughter's body autonomy should send me a text to 53106 with all the appropriate uh, biological and medical references. This is just claptrap. Uh, and uh, what about all the people who kiss their dogs? It's disgusting, but hardly a precursor to bestiality, uh, says Richard in Limerick. That's the best text of the day, entitled to a bar of chocolate. Um, a right hook t-shirt, now that is a good idea. Uh, Richard in Limerick, send me your address and we'll bang off a right hook t-shirt to you. Now, Jennifer Aniston, she's the friend's dame, of course. And she's fed up with the absurd and disturbing scrutiny of women following tabloid reports that she is pregnant. She wrote a lengthy statement for the Huffington Post in which she denied uh, the rumours. She says the message that girls are not pretty unless they're incredibly thin is something we're all willingly buying into. Now, I, 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 didn't, I haven't got the full statement because it was pretty lengthy. But I'm not sure between the connection between uh, her being fed up with the about the issue of tabloid reports she's pregnant. I suppose what she's saying is scrutiny of women. But the point is, I think scrutiny of us all. As soon, I think what um, Jennifer Aniston is forgetting that when you put yourself out there in a public place and you get very well paid for being a public figure, then the result is 
uh, scrutiny. So tough luck, Jennifer. And uh, on the issue of the racism piece yesterday, George says uh, Flex Brown is anti-everything that isn't middle-class privilege. He's a snob. Uh, You just haven't a clue, really, have you? You just have no idea. Uh, And um, there was a piece in which we gave people the opportunity to speak to a national radio audience and they couldn't uh, carry on in a reasonable way and that's why he got upset and it had nothing to do with racism, the colour of their skin or the country from which they came or being a snob. Uh, and uh, we'll be talking about it though after five o'clock we'll have somebody on who thinks I am um, a racist and if I'm not a racist the country is racist so we'll have plenty of that um, at uh, five o'clock body autonomy well apparently it's horse manure says Paul okay I'm inclined to, to agree Uh they, they, obviously the people moaning about this are not mothers that have kids. I kiss my kids regularly and they kiss me. It's called being a loving parent, says Audrey Waterford. I think the point, Audrey, to be fair, and you haven't mentioned it in your text, is whether you kiss them on the lips or not. And that's the point that, uh, oh, Louise does kiss her little boys on the lips all the time. Oh, well done. Thanks for telling me that. And Deck, we were talking about Leah. Deck says, Leah, talking about bodily autonomy, expects the babies to change their own nappies so nobody can see them naked. Body autonomy, my backside, he says. Well, I'm afraid, Leah, you're on a bit of a loser there. Nobody really is buying in to body autonomy. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back to the Right Hook. George Hook here. And uh, we were talking about Victoria Beckham, man or child. I got a text which said an older man talking about Beckham's child is revolting. What a load of crap. Like, I have a, a grandson, uh, a day and a half old. Uh, am I wrong? Talk about him, kiss him, look at him, hold him. The other seven grandchildren from 13 to 1. Uh, am I not allowed to kiss them or otherwise? That's quite a claptrap. And then I got more claptrap from Lorraine. She said, as I said on Twitter yesterday, you have no right to comment on whether you think Ireland is a racist country for the same reason that I have no right to comment, because we are white. Oh, interesting. We're white, we can't comment on racism. Uh, I was never a soldier, I can't comment on war. I'm not a policeman, I can't comment on five policemen being shot in Dallas. I never stood stood for election, so I can't talk about Dolairn. Lorraine, you're talking the most unadulterated claptrap. And it's people like you who will not talk about the issue of racism in Ireland if it exists in the in the way that people are attempting to suggest it will, then nothing is ever going to happen. Oh, and uh, there's a 45-year-old man on in text with 8 and 10, two boys. Kiss them on the lips every day, in public or at home. Well done. Okay, look, we all believe now that uh, showing your love for your children in some uh, shape or form is A-OK. And we're not going to talk it anymore. 
Now, uh, I'm uh, joined uh, on the programme now by by Niall Ring, Dublin City Councillor. Councillor Ring, welcome to the programme. Thanks very much, George, and congratulations on the latest addition to the... <laughs> yeah, I hope it's the last. I can't cope with it anymore. <laughs> Listen, um, the public consultation has started because we're going to have a 30 kilometre uh, speed limit uh, around the city and suburbs of Dublin. What are your thoughts? Well, I think at this stage, George, we're getting in, we're getting a bit too nanny statish for my liking. Um, yes, there is public consultation and I think everyone would agree that, you know, in, in residential areas and around schools, etc., there should be very strict speed limits. But I see, yet again, this is another attack on the motorists in the city and we really have to take a more, I suppose to use the in phrase, a holistic approach because everyone should be involved in this. Like it, cyclists shouldn't cycle on footpaths or break red lights. Pedestrians shouldn't jaywalk. Taxis should be more regulated. These rickshaws which are going around the city. Yes. And, and if you happen to fall out of one of those when you're jarred on a Friday night, they leave you there and run. You know, if we all, if we all obey the rules of the road, There'd be there'd be no issue, but obviously we don't. But uh, yeah, but councillor ring. Um, the 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 problem is one. This is public consultation, but nothing will happen. This is a fait accompli. It'll be driven through um, by, and it, it 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 it's driven through because your chief executive is a fanatic, a cycling fanatic, and and the chairman of your transportation committee, uh, Councillor Cuff, is a cycling fanatic. They are anti-motor car. So you cannot get a fair uh, assessment of the situation. Is it true that a 60-kilometre limit in old money as 37 miles an hour is going to be set for the three-lane Nace Road? Is that correct? Um, I didn't hear that. I presume that's Dublin South Council or something like that. But that sounds, again, absolute madness. We, we, We really have to get get our act together on this. And you're right about the Chief Executive and my, my constituency colleague, Councillor Cuff. Um, the Transport Committee, we had a presentation there only last week about this um, city centre transport proposal, which bizarrely, and which just cannot happen, they expect the car journeys in between the canals to drop from 2006 levels by 50% by next year. That's the plan. I mean... They want cycling to go up, which is brilliant. But you just it, like some of these figures are they're 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 it's dreamland. It's it's just not going to happen. Are you seriously telling me that 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 Kantelikov, uh suggests that that car traffic levels are going to drop by fifty percent based on those six? Absolutely, I have the figures in front of me. We, what we, was he smoking at the time when he made that <laughs> suggestion? Well, we're not allowed to smoke in the chamber, uh, George. So um, maybe he was chewing it. I don't know what he was doing. Well, Sniffing I'm it. delighted to see the government are bringing in, and particularly in the inner city area, that at least just as an aside, that this legislation to um, for these uh, prescription drugs is coming through, which will which will uh, actually have a great impact on um, the north inner city. But uh, the councillor ring. 
this whole thing about like that you won't that if you get hit by a car you're likely to get hurt nobody disputes but anybody who watches cyclists go to I only saw it two nights ago where a cyclist went straight through a red light and the pedestrian crossing was operable obviously because there were red lights on and the cyclist, a woman, crashed into two pedestrians walking, as they thought, safely on a green pedestrian crossing. And can, like the, the, the lunatics have now taken over the asylum where if you get hit by a bike can travel at 30 to 40 kilometres an hour. If you get hit by a bicycle at 30 or 40 kilometres an hour, uh, and particularly if you're a vulnerable citizen like a child or an old age pensioner, you're in deep doo-doo. Absolutely, I, I 100% agree, and we see it every day. I stop at traffic lights, obviously. I'm in, in the car most of the time or on the bus, and everyone stops, and the bikes just whiz by. It's like it's like they're all... I'm colourblind, but... I certainly know the difference between the red and green light. Now, I don't know what it is about cyclists that they just seem to be have but, some immunity to the, to the red lights. But they have immunity, though. That is the point. They have immunity, and they have immunity because you have fanatics uh, running the show. Like, I don't know how, when you, you go into town on your bicycle, you're expected to bring home the three-piece suite on the crossbar of the bicycle. I mean, shopping will require vehicular transport. Absolutely, and that's a, that's a very good point, and it's one that is continually over overlooked by all the so-called experts. We were given a, a city san- centre transport proposal, an assessment on the impact on the retail market. This was commissioned from uh, two firms. Um, they they concluded, or they didn't actually make it, sorry, the conclusions were what the city manager wanted and what the, what the executives wanted. But w- when you read, did drill down into it, motorists spend three times the amount in the city centre as somebody coming in by bus, someone coming in by bike, they spend a multiple of that. And yet, Dublin City Council, which has a budget of 800 million, 300 million of that is the rates that are paid by mainly city centre establishments, shops, iron, it's the whole lot. They pay the rates. And yet, here we are trying to trying to drive motorists off the streets. And then with the, the latest plan to, to pedestrianise College Green to actually more or less ban everything that moves out of the city centre. And the implications for that are just horrendous in terms of the rate base of the city and the services that we want to provide in the city. But, but uh, this couldn't happen without councillors agreeing with it, though, councillor. You know, I mean, for all for all Cuff's fanaticism and, and Keegan's fanaticism, they do need councillors to vote it through. Well, I certainly detect a, a movement in a shift in opinion um, against this city centre transport proposal because we had a meeting last week and I'd say if a vote was taken there and then, it wouldn't have got through. I think people are beginning to look, hopefully look at the numbers and the one, as I quoted to you there earlier, where they they expect car journeys to drop by 50% and it, between the canals in order, for, in order to have this city centre transport proposal go, gone through. People are beginning to realise it's hitting at the very core and I've I've no problem driving at thirty k in, in, in per per hour around schools and whatever. But when you're on the keys, if I'm coming back from the city council to the north side and I'm on the keys and there isn't a car inside, which is very rare, but 
to try and to try and drive at thirty kilometres per hour is almost impossible. But and you would, if you drive at thirty kilometres an hour. I tried it in Rathmines uh, Main Street uh, just a couple of mornings ago, and if I was I was driving at thirty kilometres an hour and was passed out by bicycles. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And that and that and and there's a level of frustration for motorists, and people people don't take this into account, like. A, a guy and and people don't necessarily they don't just decide I'm getting into my car and I'm 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 going into town. They go for specific reasons, and a lot of people work in town. And this is another another cohort that they seem to have forgotten that some people work hours that maybe they can't get a bus, maybe their employers won't pay for a taxi, and they have to go in by car or cross the city by car. And and there just seems to be no account taken. But of, if, of if 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 uh, Dublin City Councillors all got on the forty the bus and went out to Dunleary, it, they might see what the kind of policies that Owen Keegan implemented uh, when he was uh, at Dunleary Council as chief executive. You had you now have a retail area in in Dunleary which is dead as a doornail, and it seems to me that Dublin City Council is attempting to do precisely the same thing for the centre of Dublin. Well, I so I believe Dunleary is a bit of a ghost town at this stage and I know Dundrum is impacting severely on, on Dublin City because people can drive to Dundrum, they can get parking. And that's another thing, George, just while I, ha- while I have my little platform here, nobody realises, and I keep bringing it up, 400 car parking spaces have been permanently taken out of the city centre because of the Lewis Cross City. It's costing Dublin City Council 1.8 million per year in lost revenue. And there is negotiations and inverted commas going on between the NRA and Dublin City Council about compensation for that. I prefer to have car parking spaces back so we can encourage people to go into town, spend money, so the businesses employ people, they pay taxes, the businesses okay. pay rates, and maybe we'll continue our 26% GDP growth rate next year. All right, thank you so much, Councillor Niall Ring. Uh, I like him, you know, he speaks the language of uh, a lot of us understand. By the way, I'm looking at my television at the moment. Uh, David Cameron is heading off to the Queen. Oh, he's just gone in. He's just gone in. Now, apparently, when Theresa May goes uh, to Buckingham Palace, she will go through what is formerly called kiss hands. And when you kiss hands with the Queen, you then become Prime Minister. So good luck, Theresa, when she's kissing hands. And hopefully the politically correct mafia won't object to kissing hands. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now, on yesterday's programme, I spoke to members of the Anti-Racism Network who were holding a Black Lives Matter solidarity demonstration in Dublin yesterday. We made an arrangement to give them time to speak to a national audience, and we were uh, told that uh, a lady from the organisation would be there. Uh, When we attempted to bring her into the studio... Uh, to conduct the interview, she insisted on somebody coming in with her who we didn't know, who we had no arrangement with uh, as well, given that we uh, were faced with a position where we either had no radio at all or two people, then we allowed two people to go in the studio. 
At which point, because uh, I phrased the question to Farah, she refused to answer, pointing to her colleague to answer. Um, I addressed a second question, a third, a fourth. Every question I addressed to the young lady, uh, she passed me over to her colleague. That wasn't the point of the interview. Um, Her colleague also, um, as it happened, uh, lucky, had a strong accent, which is never good for radio, obviously, and more importantly, uh, did not uh, necessarily seem to have a grasp of what was going on, understandably, uh, since we hadn't discussed the program item with him. However, I then received... uh, an email from my next guest. It is Pierish McHenry uh, from the Department of Geography at University College Dublin, who's been on the show many times. But in one sentence, he said, I would like to express my dismay at the quite astonishingly dismissive and discordious way in which you treated two interviews today on the topic of racism. Moreover, what you said is simply inaccurate and untrue. Uh, Welcome to the program, Pierish. Hi, hi, George, but it's University College Cork. Sorry, University College Cork. I ought to know that. Right, off you go. Well, off I go. Well, well, first of all, I mean, uh, I I don't think the issue should really be about the two individuals or indeed how you dealt with them. Uh, I I mean, I prefer to focus here on on the issues. And you did appear, certainly to my ears, to suggest that um, racism didn't happen in Ireland. Um, and I think there's no point in getting into the arguments about whether Ireland is or is not a racist country. But that's the point I made. I said we were not a racist country. Well, you did. Well, I'm, I'm happy to deal with that. You also said you didn't understand what institutional racism was. No, I and didn't. I, I didn't. I said I didn't understand what structural racism was. And I asked my guests to explain it, and they couldn't explain it. Well... I think by then, perhaps, the conversation has gone a bit off the rails, and I'm not in the business of apportioning blame. Uh, I'm simply saying that that, 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 that's how it went. But I would like to contest your point that racism does not exist in Ireland. Uh, I didn't say that. I said Ireland was not a racist country. Well, I I think we're mincing words here. No, we're not. No, we're not. Not at all. George, George, I'm sorry. I, I think we are, and I think you should listen, at least do me the courtesy of hearing me out. There are many, many instances of racism which can be quoted in Ireland. The, the, the ones I gave to you in my email, and you, you didn't read out that part, but the, the ones I gave to you, for instance, concerned anti-Semitism. Um, I grew up in Dublin in the 1950s. I'm 62 years of age now. And I heard many, many cases of daily anti-Semitism when I was a child. I heard exper- uh, sentiments expressed to the effect, for instance, Hitler didn't finish the job. That was not an unusual thing to hear at the time. You, you pick an interesting uh, battleground with me. I was only starting there. No, but uh, let's uh, stay. We, we haven't even got going All yet. Right. I was going to bring it down to the present day. But I, I'm happy to talk, talk about that, which if you wish. One, I grew up in Albert Road, which is still to this very day, as I'm sure you know, living in Cork as you do. I know do, very well. It's called Jewtown. I yeah. grew up amongst all those Jewish families in Albert Road. Um, I, I'm sure I don't need to remind you that the Lord Mayor of Cork in 1977... Um, was Gerald Goldberg a Jew? I don't I need well, to. And I, was at his I don't need to remind you. I don't need to remind you that two Lord Mayors of Dublin, uh, the Briscoes, were Jewish. And I certainly don't need to remind you that, in fact, the first Jewish Lord Mayor in Ireland was elected in 1553. In your. So, 
Yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, I know by history too, George. But we but have a record. We have exceptions, a positive record. Exceptions do not prove the rule. You've only got to go back to De Valera's refusal to admit Jewish refugees after the war and his lack of interest in the whole question of the Holocaust during the war, partly because we had a, a viciously anti-Semitic ambassador at the time in Berlin. The fact that you can cite a few names of a few individuals who made it, and as I say, I knew Jerry Goldberg myself, I was at his funeral, it doesn't prove in any way that anti-Semitism didn't exist. And I think that's the point that I want to make here, that... In fact, if you look at people's lived lives, whether they are black Africans living in Ireland today or Jewish people living in Ireland in the 1950s, there are many cases of individual bias and discrimination okay. against them that can be cited. All right. Well, let's take black Africans since you raise it. Uh, I campaigned against apartheid in Ireland. Now, I thought I was campaigning for equal rights in uh, South Africa. The result is there are not equal rights in South Africa. The whites are now discriminated discriminated by the majority Africans. So all we've done is change the discrimination of white versus black to black versus white. The discrimination... Are Ireland or about South Africa? When? Let, me, let me just ask you that question. I mean, are we talking here about the rights of Africans in Ireland? Or are we talking about the rights well, of other people what in South Africa? I, uh, what I you know, am saying is... This is, is, is whataboutery, nothing more no, or less. We are not I'm talking about Ireland. We're not a racist country. There is no equivalent of the National Front in Ireland. There is no equivalent of UKIP in Ireland. There is no equivalent uh, of right-wing organisations in Ireland. Let me remind you that in Germany, um, last year, there were almost 20,000 racist attacks. You can't find... uh, How many racist attacks... uh, can you quote in this country? This country has a proud record and it shouldn't be demeaned by you. Can I answer your question? I'm not demeaning anyone. I've been in this business for a very long time myself and I know what you're saying, but I simply don't agree with you. Let me just quote one piece of research, for instance, which was done in Munster 10 years ago by myself and my colleague Liam Coakley. We found that of the people who had refugee rights in Munster, the vast majority were still unemployed and that was in the middle of the Celtic Tiger boom. And the only explanation we could come up with, and we talked to people about this at length, both Irish and uh, refugees, the only explanation was that they were not offered jobs because there was active discrimination against people who had come to Ireland in that fashion. So the, if you, you talk about racist incidents, the fact is we have no proper racist incident reporting network in the country today, but the organisations which do work with uh, immigrants themselves can cite many, many cases of incidents of racist attacks, both verbal and sometimes physical, against people of a different skin colour, visible ethnic minorities. They happen, I'm sorry to say, all the time. I'm not saying we haven't got a proud record in other respects, but my difficulty with your way of describing it is you don't want to entertain any possibility that anything bad might ever happen. And I'm telling you, it does all the time. But that is suggesting that I think there are no crooked accountants, no incompetent doctors, uh, no... The, the point is, of course there are. And and because Oliver J. Flanagan, in 1940-whatever it is, made an Five. astonishing attack against Jewish people... Where the bees are, there is the honey. Where the Jews are, there is the money. That and that was not an uncommon point of view at the time, I suggest. That Well, I think it was an uncommon point. Like, you're in Cork, which which has an extreme 
astonishingly proud record in relation uh, to Jewish relations. You ought to know, because you clearly have studied it, you ought to know that Catholic families went to the Jews in Cork uh, when there was a real possibility that Hitler might invade. And they said they would take their Jewish children and raise them in their families as their own in order to protect them. You forget the proud tradition of Presentation College, Christian College, St. Angeles, who took Jewish students into their school when many other schools around Ireland didn't do it. Like, this country has a proud record in your demeaning. George, 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 again, let me just stop you there. You just, in fact, made the point I would have made myself. The presentation may well have taken them in, but as you just said, many other schools in Ireland did not. You're trying to argue that we're talking here about a few bad apples. I'm saying it was far more widespread than that. And by the way, I'm not just talking about Jews in Ireland. I could also mention the case of the Hungarians in 1956, who were treated so appallingly badly when they came to Ireland that they actually sued uh, for a hunger strike in the middle of it all, and the Irish government went cap in hand to the Canadians to beg them to take the Hungarians off their hands. I could cite many other cases of far more recent kind, including people who arrived either as asylum seekers or as immigrants and have found themselves the victims of oppression when they got here. And I could also mention the record of the Irish diaspora, which by and large is pretty shocking, especially in the United States of America, a country you know well. There have been the odd exceptions of civil rights lawyers and people who have expressed solidarity with African-Americans, for instance. There have been many who took the very opposite view. I've met them myself, and I'm pretty sure you, you did too in your days in Philadelphia. I don't get the Philadelphia reference. You said you didn't want to talk about South Africa, but you're happy to talk about Philadelphia. No, but I'm talking here about the Irish record, and the Irish record maybe starts in Ireland, but it also expresses itself in other places. But that's and an outrageous slur. It's not a good record. It's an outrageous slur on Irish people who have gone to America that you are suggesting they take racism with them to America. That's outrageous. I didn't say they took it with them to America. I'm saying that when they got to America, they behaved in a very racist fashion very much of the time. And the evidence is there. Uh, if you have other evidence to show me, please do so. But simply to describe something as outrageous, as if that was a factual piece of information that you're conveying, is wrong. Well, I can stand over my facts. You don't have any facts. What facts? I, I, what happened in Philadelphia? No, no, I, when I said Philadelphia, I understood myself that you had lived in Philadelphia at a certain stage and I worked with, with um, young African-Americans. If, I, if I'm wrong about that, I, I no, think... No, I worked with young African-Americans in Philadelphia, Pittsburgh and many other American cities. Yeah, that's, that's, all, that's all I'm saying. I'm saying you know these places. But in the case of the Irish, uh, I wasn't talking about Philadelphia. I could, for instance, talk about New York uh, in, in, during the period of the Civil War. Uh, when uh, there were major riots against local African-Americans, primarily fomented by Irish. I could talk about Irish relations in California when they took an anti-Chinese position. I could talk about many different instances of Irish racism. I'm simply saying it's a fact of life. That's not saying all Irish are racist. What but I'm simply saying our record is not a very proud okay. one. And for you to suggest that it's, it's you know, not appropriate to criticize where things need to be criticized, I think is mistaken. What is interesting is that so many people want to come here. Um, if it's such a terrible place to live, why do you think people come here? George, nobody said it's such a terrible place to live. But I'm also disputing your statement that it's just uh, a few bad accountants, a few bad apples. I'm saying that there are many issues where we need to look at our own policies. 
you discussed direct provision yesterday, for instance. I think direct provision is, is a crime against human rights, and I think it should be ended. And ministers have said that themselves in the past, but they have done nothing about it. I mean, there's a whole range of different policy issues to consider here. There's also the lived experience of people who find they can't get jobs because their names clearly identify them as not being Irish. And there's, as I say, the daily harassment, which some people are subjected to, not everybody. Uh, I could quote, for instance, one study which is almost completed by a PhD student of mine who looks at discrimination in the Irish medical system, and he shows conclusively, and he's interviewed very many parties, that in fact there is widespread discrimination in Irish medicine against people of foreign origin. I'm glad you raised that. I'm actually really glad you raised the issue of Irish medicine. There might be a reason why people are concerned about foreign doctors. I'm sure you will remember very relatively recently, because let's bring it up days rather than 1553 in the all which I brought up, um, the, the, the issue of the doctor who didn't know the difference between uh, um, uh, an x-ray of somebody's elbow and somebody's ankle. He didn't George, know the difference. George, we're People, down now to one no, bad apple. No, what that well, well, I'm telling you that I'm not prepared to have the Irish nation uh, demeaned on the basis of some bad apples either. Let me, let me also say... In the medical case, I'm not talking about some bad apples. I'm talking about widespread and systemic discrimination. How many, for instance, foreign-born consultants here can get permanent jobs in the Irish system? Very few is the answer. And if you knew why, you could look at the system and see where the discrimination arises. In this case, it arises within the ranks of the Irish Medical Council. So there are many cases there where it's not the one bad apple. And incidentally, you, you, you quoted one bad apple. I could quote the bad apple who went in masquerading as a doctor and was thrown out after three weeks and is now... Uh, let us say, many years later, finally uh, having his um, history revealed to the to the nation. Uh, is that going to say that all Irish people are bad because one person uh, took money from a charity and kept it for himself? Obviously not. Was he a racist because he took money from a charity? The point I'm making is you can't simply prosecute an argument on the basis of isolated individual cases. But that's there are, precisely there what are many, you're doing. Many, that's no, precisely there, uh, what let, you're let doing. Me, there are many, many doctors working throughout the Irish health system, for instance, on which it depends and who come from other countries, but who have, because of the system of discrimination within the medical system, virtually no chance of advancing to a higher rank within the system. And many of them, in sheer frustration, leave, having spent years and years here in temporary positions, going from pillar to post, usually in rural hospitals, because the system is stacked in favour of the Irish-born, Irish-trained medical individual. That should not happen. And that is not a question of a couple of bad apples. That's actually an example of what you were referring to earlier on as structural racism, where the system itself discriminates and it's, it's widespread. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. The lecturer in Migration Studies at University uh, College Cork, Pierish McHenry. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined in the studio now by the newly appointed Minister of State for Financial Services, Fine Gael TD for Dublin South East, Owen Murphy. Minister, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much. A couple of things I wanted to talk about, but first and foremost, you've come from this meeting, sort of what's going to happen after Brexit meeting at Dublin, that well, Dublin City Council holds. Thing, well, yeah? Councillor Paul McAuliffe organised yeah. a meeting in Dublin City yeah. Council this morning with a couple of key stakeholders in Dublin to talk about the potential impact yeah. of Brexit on Dublin and also opportunities. So I was attending that. So was Dominic Chilcott, the UK ambassador. John McGrain was there from the uh, Irish-British uh, Chamber of Commerce. And we had Dan O'Brien from uh, yeah. 
uh, the international. Did European you find research. out anything that I haven't found out so far, <laughs> or do we have we found out how little we know? Is that really well, what it amounts to? No, it was a bit, what why why Paul McAuliffe organised it was to get key stakeholders to come and really kind of give their inputs to people yeah. like myself yeah. and Dominic Chilcott, so we could better understand what's happening at the level of tourism or education, a bit more detail than maybe has been put out there into the in the public realm so far. Yeah, but it's interesting that you're the Minister of State for Financial Services because, of course, the, the, the big discussion almost since the referendum has been this vision that thousands of merchant bankers are going to flood across the Irish Sea into Dublin. So are you building new offices now to account for this horde of merchant bankers? <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, it's important when you talk about kind of the impression that people might have coming yeah, to the back of Brexit. Exactly. We, we complement and we compete with UK financial services. So for us, like ideally, the UK wouldn't have made this decision. Now that they have, what we want to make sure is that the UK ends up in a position where they're as close to Europe as possible because of the way we complement their financial services. So while we anticipate people coming over and people have already been taking a look at that, um, it's not going to be in hordes and it won't be, we don't think, immediately. But I mean, one of the good things about what was organised this morning was it was a chance to talk about those capacity issues like office space. And what you might see if you're going down the Keys at all, you'll see the new office being built yeah. down in the, um, in, in the Docklands area. And another key thing is to work on infrastructure to open up new areas of land. So if you look at the glass bottle site, which is the potential for houses, accommodation, office space, sure. uh, film industry potentially, we need to build new bridges to open up that so that it's accessible. It should be important because, as you say, it's important that people know. There are a few other cities like, uh, wouldn't mind some of these hordes yeah. of merchant bankers. I mean, like Frankfurt, for instance, or Paris, or or the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg. I mean, the, yeah. these these because these banks are multinationals. They're not yeah. British banks by and large, isn't that so? So they're very movable. Yeah, so exactly. We're in a competitive space when it comes to other European cities looking to take advantage of, of what might be kind of coming on on stream once Brexit actually happens, so two yeah. or three years down the line, and what we can do in the meantime. We've got a good offering here. When you look at things like English speaking, when you look at things like quality of life, proximity to other financial centres, offerings that other cities wouldn't necessarily have. But it's true to say, I mean, some decisions will be made for, for, for reasons we can't control. If you're HSBC in London, you're going to look to Paris because you have cultural and historical reasons to do that yeah. because you've made acquisitions of certain banks already. There's a, a natural flow there. But at the same time, there's a natural flow from, from London to Dublin as well, a okay. very natural flow. So. Now, you're, you're, if you, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but you're the kind of third leg on a stool at the moment, a financial uh, stool, because you have the Minister for Finance and, and then you have Pascal Donoghue, is the kind of czar of all things monetary. Um, presumably, you three ministers are working very closely together, but everybody's talking about this new world that we're in. Mm-hmm. And what's this announcement today about sort of midterm finances and spending? What's that so all about? What we're trying to do, and this is coming more from Pascal's side of, of, of things, is to have a new engagement around the budget. What we would have seen for years would have been this, you know, budget, all the secrets. The minister comes out in a big bang and announces yeah. it all on budget day. And what we've tried to implement so far this year is a new approach to that. And so what we did today and what we did just earlier was to basically announce what is the midterm expenditure report. And essentially what that's doing is saying where we are finishing in 2016 in terms of our spending 
to give the baseline for when we then approach 2017 and what we think we can spend. So what's it like? Was this a good news day or what was it? Well, I, I think it's, it's a good news in terms of our openness with the numbers that you wouldn't have seen in the past. I mean, I sat on the banking inquiry and we look back to the budgetary processes in the, in the noughties leading up to the crash. Very close process. You know, there'd be recommendations made at a particular amount and then you'd see the final amount approved would be much in excess of that. We can't do that anymore because of the fiscal rules. But we also think it's important that we're open and transparent with our numbers. Yeah, but you must nevertheless uh, have... You must have been upset, I would imagine, although the Minister for Finance, Michael Noonan, kind of played it down. Seeing figures like 26% growth, which somebody, I think, Paul Krugman described as leprechaun economics, you know, that doesn't do you any favours. Isn't that right? I mean, he described it as leprechaun economics, but we're not... We're doing the counting based on internationally agreed standards. That's what the CSO is counting according to shared rules across sure. the other European uh, states so we can have some sort of common measurement. It's important to state the 26% figure, while it's a figure of one way of measuring growth in the economy, by no means are we using it to measure the, the pulse of real growth. And we're not making any policy decisions off the back of it. You're so, not. No, I think mean, that's very important to say. Well, You're not going to make policy decisions on the basis of this 26% figure. No, insofar as budget 2017 is concerned, absolutely not. It would be irresponsible of us to say to ourselves, we're growing at 26%, therefore next year let's spend an, an additional 25%. Irresponsible because that's not reflective of the real economy, okay. but also we don't have the money. So next year, what we were announcing today was... Uh, an anticipated expenditure for next year of an increase of 3%, which will be less than what we're expecting in growth at about 3.5%. And what will happen between now and budget day is we've broken it down by department, a kind of a baseline where they're starting from. We know there's going to be an increase of new money in the region of somewhere just below 900 million. That's in addition to an increase of 900 million to take into account right. for demographics and but, things but, like that. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it won't be your budget. It'll be the Minister of Finance's budget. Pascal Donner and yourself will presumably have some kind of input. But isn't the big problem across Europe, uh, like our, we don't have a conventional government like you did in the old days where one party had more seats than the rest. Um, you look at countries around Europe and they're all in a tricky, not all, but a lot of them, because there is this sense that the world economies are actually not raising all boats, that there are still people in poverty or deprivation or just simply having difficulty making ends meet. Yeah, I think How what, do you sell that message now come budget day? Yeah, well, what we've seen over, since the financial crisis, I think, is that traditional economic orthodoxy has been turned on its head a bit. And we're having problems with trying to create inflation and the tools that you would have... That, should have worked, or we thought would have worked in terms of, you know, uh, monetary policy or, or, or quantitative easing or anything like that, aren't having the effects that we thought they would. And then you're also seeing imbalances if you look across the Eurozone, where certain countries have this really significant problem with long-term unemployment or youth unemployment. So it hasn't been balanced across the Eurozone. When you look to Ireland, what we've tried to do in terms of correcting the, the fiscal deficit is to try and do it in a balanced way. And what the reports have shown is actually, we've done that in a fair way. We still have the most progressive redistribution of wealth you know, than any other European country. So that when we come to then making adjustments to spending, uh, or as we've done that in the past, we, we've tried to do that in a fair way. For, fortunately, we're now increasing spending. So we're able to hire more teachers or invest more into roads, into school buildings. So, 
it's a different problem that we're facing versus other European countries at the moment. Now, my guest is Owen Murphy, the Minister of State for Financial Services, Fine Gael TD for Dublin South East. Interesting, I was reading today that it's part of your bailiwick to implement the recommendations of the committee that you actually were on, the banking inquiry. Now, what I did read was, though, you were going to consult the finance spokespersons for Fianna Fáil and for Sinn Féin, Pierre Storty. He mm-hmm. didn't even sign the thing. Why, why the heck are you talking to him? He didn't agree with you in the first place. No, but just because you don't agree doesn't mean that it isn't useful to have a conversation with someone. I would have worked very closely with Pierce uh, Doherty, with Michael McGrath, with the other members of the committee over an 18-month period. And Pierce was right there to the last moment. Now, it was disappointing they didn't sign off on the report, but at no point did he act in bad faith in that regard. He just he couldn't at the end sign the report. And I understand that. Um, we drew up a list of recommendations and in my, my final speech uh, on the Banking Inquiry, which is the speech in the dawn, we published the report. I said, whoever's going to be responsible for this, I'm going to be hounding you week in, week out to make sure you implement the recommendations. As it happens, I find myself in the Department of Finance now and I went and I asked uh, both ministers if I could take this on as my responsibility to implement those recommendations. What I've done now is I've asked Michael and Pierce to come back to me and the other members of the, of the committee with what recommendations they think are a priority well, because we it, can't do everything at once. Well, it, there's two things, aren't there? There is one, um, you can't do it all at once. Yeah. And the second thing is that sometimes you can get a recommendation which which is actually quite difficult to turn into kind of legislation, isn't that? So so yeah. if we cut to the chase and if you, know, if you could pick two that you think I've got to get, I'm going to try and get on as quickly as possible, what would they be? Well, one that I would pick straight off of, immediately out of the report would be the implementation of a budget oversight office for the Oireachtas. And that's in train already with the Budget Scrutiny Committee. That's a really important element of what we're trying to do today in terms of releasing figures and having an open dialogue. But, but getting that, you know, that, that other balance, if you look at the responsibility of the government versus the responsibility of the Dáil, the Dáil is to act as a check and balance in government behaviour. All right, behavior. OK, so you bring in an oversight committee, right? Yeah. Uh, and... and? The other would be in relation to the Department of Finance um, and the peer reviews that are recommended. <clears throat> Excuse me. That would be an ongoing thing that you'd be constantly looking at what you're doing internally in a department to make sure that but you're not getting captured you, by groupthink. I mean, think. those things sound quite good, but yeah. how do you turn them into like a rule or a law? Or, but, uh, or Yeah, I mean, and, and that's it. And one of the problems we had in the banking inquiry is when we came to formulating our recommendations, we were up against a, ty- a tight timeline. So maybe the recommendations aren't as detailed as we'd like them to be. And that's why I'm talking to the members of the committee to say, Let's flesh these out a bit. And I want to set up a committee across departments to exactly answer that question. How do we actually do this? Now, some of the recommendations are already being implemented. Some are for the central bank. So communications have to be open there and to make sure that yeah, but, they're but, happy but, with what's uh, happening on the their side. The reason for that inquiry, and, and many of us weren't too happy about it because it didn't seem to answer some of the questions we had, how we got into manure in the first place. But it's interesting in relation to the charity sector, in relation to consult, that what we see is we have a regulator. And in fact, on this occasion, the regulator has not been personally sort of blamed for. What's been blamed is the system around it. Whereas in the banking inquiry, the suggestion is the regulator took his eye off the ball. We do don't do regulation very well. So there are probably people listening saying, ah, yeah, but we live to repeat history. This is going to happen again. Well, history does repeat itself. You know, it's, it's kind of yeah, the inevitable flaw of human nature. We prefer not banking inquiry, not no, banking ones. No, exactly. The and so the, the idea would be that the lessons that we have learned through the inquiry and through the very real crash that everyone experienced in this country, 
that we'll put in place measures so we won't repeat these mistakes. You mentioned the charities and, and regulation of the charity sector. The, the, the regulator there is actually new. Has only been in a couple of years. More powers are coming the regulator's way, and more more funding next year. I think that's important. It's a separate conversation to have. No, I think is. about I charities. No, it is. Separate. I, I, yeah. I only raised yeah. it in the context of regulation. But if you look at the regulation, the banking yeah. regulator had the powers. He didn't use them. The charity regulator didn't have the powers. That's sure. the only right. difference so, 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 I was yeah, trying no, no. to make. Yeah. Coming back to the banking side, I mean, in terms of our banking regulation, in terms of our banking sector, in terms of our integration at the European level and oversight and new rulemaking, it, it's transformed completely since 2008 in terms of the new rule books that we have, in terms of the banking union progress that we're making, in terms of the powers that regulator have and the type of work that they're doing. We moved away from principle-based, what might have been termed as light touch in inverted commas, to this rules-based approach. And we have a very, like an excellent team over in the central bank and I've met with the, with the governor and, and the regulator. And there's a constant you know, dialogue happening there to make sure that they're happy with, with the resources that they have and that we're happy, I suppose, at a high level, but also maintaining our distance at the regulation has been done. And it is being done. But with a new kind of single supervisory mechanism, regulation is happening for the big entities at the European level, but it's also happening on the ground right. here at the central bank for the smaller entities. Uh, Owen Murphy, uh, Minister of State for Financial Services, Finnegal TD for Dublin South East. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Yeah, I don't know, Ms. Teresa. I agree with what you said. I mean, Teresa's a bloody difficult woman, but you and I work for Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was former Minister Kenneth Clark caught off mic inadvertently, of course, referring to the two women that he had worked with, Theresa May, who today became Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and the former Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. Well, to discuss it, I'm joined by the Eugene Meyer Professor of History at Bard College, New York, Richard Aldous. Professor Aldous, welcome to the programme. Always a pleasure, George. So, of course, a book. uh, You wrote a book about Thatcher. Uh, I did, about her relationship with uh, Ronald Reagan, um, and it was another example of a a relationship, although very close, of one partner finding Margaret Thatcher also to be something of a, well, as Kenneth Clark said, a difficult woman. Yeah. Now, there's a kind of a sense here that because May is a woman, therefore she must be compared with Thatcher rather than Brown or Blair or Churchill or William Pitt the Younger. For, I mean, there may, do you see, apart from being difficult, any other comparisons here between May and Thatcher that you can see at a distance of 5,000 miles? I mean, I think you're absolutely right to say, I mean, it's patronising, isn't it, on one level to say, well, Theresa May is a woman, Margaret Thatcher was a woman, therefore they must be the same. Um, I suppose it's inevitable that because she's only the second uh, woman prime minister that the comparison will be drawn. Uh, I think that, uh, curiously enough, one of the things that uh, draws the two people together, Theresa May and Margaret Thatcher, is that uh, to some degree their rise has actually been quite conventional, that, you know, Theresa May comes to the job as Home Secretary, Margaret Thatcher uh, had been the um, Secretary of State for Education. They both served their apprenticeship, they both got to the top uh, by their own merits. And I think that even though it's kind of strange to even discuss it, um, nevertheless, the fact that she goes on to be the, uh, the second woman prime minister, it is a significant day. 
Yeah, but there there is another issue here, which Thatcher and May, in a sense, sort of are different in the pretty conventional middle class, whereas, as you know, the majority of cabinet ministers in the history of uh, the British government have been have been old Etonians. So, you know, the tradition in Britain was, uh, yeah, Churchill was at Harrow, and, you know, you go through them all, they all were these kind of public schoolboys uh, and in some ways, you almost thought that their upbringing was so different from the ordinary people that they governed. How the hell did they know what the ordinary people wanted? May and Tantra may actually have been in better touch with the people. Would you buy that? I think there's an element of truth in that. But I mean, certainly one of the characteristics of David Cameron's uh, government has been this sense that it's dominated by old Etonians and public school boys more generally. Uh, Theresa May does go back to that tradition of Margaret Thatcher, also John Major uh, and uh, Margaret Thatcher's predecessor as well, Edward Heath, who all came through a kind of rather more modest, more provincial uh, kind of a background. So, yeah, I think I think that it is true uh, that she doesn't have this kind of sense of coming from absolutely within the establishment that someone like David Cameron absolutely did have. But I saw she, her, her father was a vicar and Gordon Brown's father was a vicar. And there's, there was a headline telegraph which absolutely staggered me. It said that Theresa May uh, was driven by morality rather than by strategy. I thought all politicians were driven by morality. No, I I mean, suddenly it appears that we have a moral prime minister and the Telegraph is surprised. Well, I think we, we probably both know that uh, politics uh, does contain its fair share of the dark arts. And, and actually, Theresa May uh, herself has demonstrated that she's a very tenacious, very tough political operator. But I think what's clear about her uh, is that she does have this kind of pragmatism about her. But the pragmatism is uh, underlying that. There is this kind of very clear sense of morality. I think it is a Christian morality, and that that informs her politics. Now, you know, whether, uh, whether that's going to be a contrast to what's gone on before, we don't know. Uh, sometimes um, re religion, uh, as Alistair Campbell famously said of uh, Tony Blair, we don't do religion. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how far to the uh, how far to the front that comes uh, with the new prime minister. But uh, interesting, you were talking and wrote the book about the special relationship between Thatcher and Reagan. This week, Obama talked about a continuance of the special relationship. But May's problem, although America's going to be there, she's actually going to be looking surely. Given the referendum, she's going to be much more looking at France and Germany uh, than towards America. Like the big problem landing on her plate is uh, exiting Europe, which yeah. is a monumental I mean, problem. I mean, cer certainly uh, she's going to have to make sure that she pr preserves the special relationship with the United States. In some ways, that's going to be even more important uh, during these kind of Brexit negotiations. But of course, you're quite right that. Uh, number one on her agenda is going to be getting that deal done, finding a way forward, because you know the simple truth is that nobody knows, nobody has a plan for this. Her job primarily uh, is is going to be to find one uh, and then to negotiate it to Britain's best uh, in Britain's best interest. 
Incidentally, I mean, coming back to the thing that you started with at the very beginning, uh, this question of her being a woman prime minister, a lot of commentators have pointed out that you know, she's going to be dealing with Angela Merkel. Uh, if Hillary Clinton is elected in, in the United States, a woman president, the head of the IMF is a, is a woman, the head of the Federal Reserve is a woman, um, Scotland, uh, the first minister is a woman. So there, there is a kind of a sense that this is a new kind of politics. Yeah, and uh, the new president of France could be a woman. Exactly. So there, there, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of these, yeah. a, a lot of these kind of questions that you know, where and Theresa May has been at the forefront of trying to push women you know, further into the political process. That you know, a lot of that work is now coming to fruition. It'll be very, very interesting uh, to see whether uh, there are very senior uh, appointments that she makes at the highest level of government. Uh, who are her women colleagues in in the House House of Commons? In relation to Europe, because you are a professor of history at Bard College in New York, um, traditionally, until the great formation of the European Union, the brainchild of money, up to that, Britain looked slightly askance at Germany or slightly askance at France. There'd been a war with both of them, and the French and Germans had been a war with each other. The whole idea about this new relationship, the original EEC, six countries, was France and Germany were never going to war again. Do you get a sense now, though, with this Brexit, we're not going to be talking war, but we could be talking about a very Hesty relationship between France and Germany and Britain. It's 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 a difficult one to work out, isn't it? I mean, all practical politics says that you know, given that the relationship between Britain and France and between Germany and France, which is cultural, economic, uh, political, that those countries have a vested interest in working together. But we also know that in politics, very often. Uh, these things can be determined by emotion as much as by reason. Uh, and I think that it is a great advantage that Theresa May is a very experienced negotiator. She is well known in Europe, for example. She has a very close relationship with the French interior minister. So I think to some degree, there's a, a sense of stability, which simply by her becoming prime minister uh, is introduced into that entire situation. I'm not sure what you'd do in New York, but certainly I'm sure when you were at UCD, you, you'd sort of look at uh, Prime Minister's question time in Britain on television and, and that great cut and thrust, which the British do so well, really. Um, how do you see being Prime Minister of Britain at a time when there's probably the most fractured opposition ever? Well, in some ways, I mean, that's a gift, isn't it? I mean, it, it, Theresa May is already beginning to look like a lucky general. I mean, if you think about it, uh, she campaigned for Britain to, re to remain in the EU. Uh, that vote gets lost, but she still becomes prime minister. Uh, all of the, uh, the leavers who campaigned against her for the leadership fell by the wayside, effectively set themselves on fire. Uh, and now she's going to become prime minister, as you say, when the uh, the opposition Labour Party is in uh, beyond chaos. I mean, we're looking at, at civil war. Uh, Labour has not looked as ineffective since the early 1980s. And we know that that led to the dominance, uh, three three time election uh, of Margaret Thatcher and then of uh, John Major. So uh, I think that for Theresa May as an incoming prime minister, she has a small majority. The fact that Labour is so it is in such chaos can only help her. Uh, does it matter that she hasn't uh, had become prime minister by general election? Does that matter? 
I don't think it does. Uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of chatter about this, this, but effectively, Britain is Britain is a parliamentary system um, that the prime minister is elected from within the House of Commons. It's not a presidential system. Uh, so the, there's, there's historical precedent um, is for the prime minister uh, to uh, segue to another prime minister if he can, he or she can command the uh, confidence of the House okay. of Commons. That does not require a general election. However, uh, in this kind of modern politics with uh, this kind of sense that the prime minister is a more presidential figure, and given what you just said about the fact that Labour is in such a difficult position, she may well, come the autumn, decide, I want my own mandate, Labour is in a mess, let's go for it. Ireland, uh, Andy Kennedy's been talking about a special relationship and all this. Finally, Richard Ellis, if you're to place a bet at this point, and it is a bet, will she be good for Ireland or bad for Ireland, do you think? I think that uh, I think that she will probably be quite good for Ireland because there is a sense of stability. And, you know, she, she is going to want a position uh, where kind of Ireland and the historic relationship with Ireland, the, all of the benefits of the peace process which you know, she as Home Secretary has, has played a major part uh, in, okay. in, those kind, in, those kind of, um, in those kind of aspects, I, d- I think there will actually be very little change uh, in the relationship between the two countries. All right, thank you so much for joining me. That was Richard Aldous, um, uh, Eugene Meyer, Professor of History at Bard College in New York. Many of you, of course, will remember him filling in for me here on many occasions on the right hook when he was Professor of History at UCD. His book, if you're interested, which will be st- even more valid now with Theresa May, uh, Reagan and Thatcher by Richard Aldous, my guest. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie The um, ESRI report, new research, has suggested that younger people would appear to be having a tougher economic time in modern Ireland than the over 65s. I'm joined by broadcaster Dylan Haskins from uh, the BBC studios in London. Dylan, welcome to the programme. Hi, George. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, you're one of those younger Irish people, although now living in England. Um, What do you think about this report? There were, I had a read of the report earlier and it doesn't it wasn't massively surprising I think really it does it shows that kind of on the on the broader broader scheme of things there seems to be at the moment more um, more quality of life problems for young people than there are for older people but you know the problems for young people seem to be housing essentially and jobs and availability of jobs um, and for old people it tends to be house health rather and and their safety and um, bearing in mind that the data that the that the report is based on is is from 2013, so probably has changed a little bit since then. Yeah, but Dylan, um, in a way, sometimes I research comes out and you think, you know, why did they bother bother doing it? Because it seems pretty evident. I mean, clearly. If you're over 65, unless you're pretty unlucky, uh, you own your house, you haven't a mortgage, your kids are reared, so you don't have any school fees, uh, and you're probably financially in a reasonably okay shape because that's what you've spent your whole entire life working towards. On the other hand, if you're younger, you have exactly the opposite set of problems. 
Yeah, and 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 that, that that's something you'd imagine wouldn't have changed much. But actually, what's what's really interesting is the um, the income threshold, income poverty for uh, for older people. That is actually something which has changed a lot in the 1990s, particularly. Wages were increasing and pensions weren't increasing, so uh, a lot of older people went much much nearer the kind of the threshold for for income poverty. So there was a lot more of that then amongst an older generation, whereas. In the past few years, actually, pensions haven't changed all that much. When you know, when they tried to change that, you saw what happened on the streets of Ireland. And um, so, so pensions not having changed, but employment terms and wages and things like that haven't uh, haven't really in- increased very much either. But so, uh, uh, there is a subtle difference, though. I mean, if if uh, when I left school, had I joined the bank. Um, I, I would have joined on the basis that I'm going to work in this bank for the next 46 years and I'm going to get a pension at the end of it. Um, my father told me to re- working for what was then um, Dublin Bus and, and, you know, he said, well, it's great when I retire, I'll have a pension. People now, younger people, don't have those certainties because nobody gets a job at 19 thinking they're going to be there for 46 years. No, and I mean you're lucky to get you know you're lucky to get a contract beyond a year. I think uh, I think I think that's actually one of the one of the biggest issues facing a younger generation is the precariousness of of, of work. So if if we even look at the you know the, the this this study did look at available access to work for um, for younger people in particular, but there's a whole lot of people who did keep their jobs during the recession when this data was gathered, but you know were made to work an awful lot harder in their jobs and had no security necessarily that their jobs were going to be there in a year. So that's going to have a knock-on effect to their mental state as well because you lack that security. Now, at the same time, you know, I I think we're an ambitious younger generation that don't necessarily don't necessarily want to be in the same job our whole lives but um, there's a lot less security in in terms of employment at the moment and there's such bad practice widespread amongst companies where you know where you're at the point of of, of actually getting fixed rights as an employee Um, things like you know companies making people take a break so that they they don't get those rights and starting a new contract that's rife amongst companies which are you know quite respectable so what about that um i quoted the examples of of um, 50 years ago and now 50 years later there none of those contractual certainties uh, are there other than the public service is that good or bad in your opinion I think it's I think I think it's bad. I think there's um, there's a lot of ways that, that companies are finding loopholes around uh, around how to how to how to avoid basically taking on the burden of uh, of having a, an obligation to their employees. Um, you, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the, the you know the massive growth of HR departments. HR is, is kind of a misnomer. They're called human you know human resources, but there's very they're very HR is very little about the human and a lot about the company and how they can save the company money. That's sure, job. but I, I suspect if I walked out of this studio onto the floor in Newstalk where there are give or take 100 young people, right, and I offered them all a 46-year contract with a pension on, six, on leaving age 65 and 50% of their finishing salary, I'm not sure how many would accept it. I'm, I'm, I, that they would sort of say, well, no, I'm not sure. I'm getting experience here, but I'm not sure this is where I want to finish. And, you know... 
so on. Young people have a different approach to work also, though. Is that not true? Definitely. I think that comes from the ambition, the idea is that, you you know, you want to progress in a job. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of people's frustration in the past few years has been the, the kind of the, the, the ceiling of they can get jobs in some cases, but it's not necessarily the job they want or they're probably more qualified than the job that they're being able to do because there's only so many jobs going around. So I, but I, I think they're kind of two extremes and the ideal is somewhere in the middle, obviously, whereby you do have security in your employment, but, you know, you're still going to be moving up and changing jobs because that's yeah. the way but, and also the world, you know, the world is changing so fast. So what jobs there are, there's, there's jobs around now which weren't around five years ago. Yes, but we're giving away a bit of a secret here that you're in the third decade of your life. Um, when you look at the people who work around you in London, and a lot of them probably Irish, but, but not necessarily so, um, are they looking at uh, a financial uh, uncertainty when they look forward 10 more years? Um, I I th- I think specifically to my generation now. I think we grew up with this kind of certain ideas about um about what we would expect of our careers and high hopes for that. And I don't think that's gone. I think what's um I think that kind of aspiration is absolutely still there. It's more just in the kind of in the day to day. I don't think people say you know oh I'm never going to uh I'm I I don't think I'm I'm I don't think I'll have a job in ten years. It's more the immediate worry of god okay. i'm not sure what i'm doing in 6 months which is actually in terms of you know your your actual mental mental health right. is it's probably more of a, a kind of damaging damaging thing but you know kind of giving people two to three year security even would would allay that right. so that's what i'm saying it's somewhere it's a compromise somewhere in the middle but at the moment it's absolutely in the extreme okay Thank you so much. From London, uh, Dylan Haskins, one of our uh, young Irish people there.